Welcome to New York, Quebec, and the water route to the center of the world. This is episode four, part two. The opening of a back door and the seizure of the gateway to the west. Forts Frontenac and Niagara, 1758-1759. General Abercrombie's awful defeat at the hands of the French in the Battle of Carillon on July 8, 1758, had set back the British war efforts to march up the Champlain-Richelieu corridor into the St. Lawrence River Valley. Word would come quite soon that Louisbourg, guarding the sea entrance to, Saint, to the St. Lawrence, had fallen. This threw open the front door to Quebec, but the British forces still faced an arduous journey upstream against a formidable set of fortifications located at Quebec City. The Marquis de Montcalm had won a tremendous victory but he had stripped the western post of their manpower to defend Carillon. Though General Abercrombie's reputation was in tatters, his subordinates quickly suggested another means through which they could both possibly save face and aid the British war effort still further. General Bradstreet made the suggestion that he should be given several thousand men to make a push up the Mohawk Valley and assault the French fortifications at modern-day Kingston, Ontario. He planned to reoccupy the abandoned site of Fort Oswego that had been burned by Montcalm after seizing it in 1756 and use this as a forward operating base. Fort Frontenac was situated north of Wolf Island at the mouth of the Cataraqui River or the modern Rousseau Canal. The fort was the base for nine vessels of the French Lake Ontario fleet with guns ranging in numbers from 8 to 18. This well-equipped freshwater navy was designed to prevent British incursions through the back door to Montreal. Since the 1680s, the French had established themselves on this site and used it to stage shipments of supplies and men to the west across the Great Lakes and down the Mississippi. The garrison was currently filled to the brim with supplies, but lacking in strength by July 1758. Barely a hundred Frenchmen manned the post but the Lake Flotilla was expected to stop any determined British efforts to gain a foothold near the fort. Bradstreet would have had to hack his way west through the carrying place, past Wood Creek, and onto Lake Oneida, as the path had hardly been maintained since the French campaign two years earlier. The creek had silted up and his men were forced to build dams to increase the water level and walk the boats through the dense undergrowth. This took considerable time, but the general did have as an advantage the knowledge of bateau logistics. Two years before, he had been placed in charge of maintaining these supply routes via bateau and was even sent on a relief mission towards Oswego. He was then put in charge of marshalling the British Lake-borne flotilla against Carillon and effectively delivered the troops to their destination, despite the eventual defeat. Bradstreet was given 3,600 men to accomplish his mission and salvage the war effort on the New York frontier in 1758. The slog through a muggy New York summer and the necessary repair work on the water passages led to several hundred troops deserting. Still, Bradstreet's force numbered almost 3,000 by the time he reached Oswego on August 21, 1758. He decided to push several hundred bateaux and whaleboats north to Sackett's Harbor and regroup. Still, Bradstreet was concerned about the French Lake Flotilla appearing and laying waste to his unprotected fleet. British efforts at recruiting Iroquois allies had failed, as these peoples dispatched runners to the French to inform them of the British presence. Though informed the British were within 20 miles of their position, the commander of Fort Frontenac did not order the Lake Fleet out to engage. Instead, he contacted Governor General Vaudreuil in Montreal, who immediately pulled the local militia from the surrounding fields to be sent west. 
On August 25th, the British had safely brought their men ashore a mile from the French position, without the French lake feet ever intervening. Bradstreet had brought artillery with him and had established siege lines 500 yards from the fort by the next day. The meager French response to the cannonade allowed Bradstreet to move his main guns a mere 150 yards from the fort and located atop a hill. This new position allowed the British to lob fire right into the old stone masonry walls. The French were soon bombarded into submission and the post surrendered. The men were allowed to be paroled to Montreal because the real prize lay in the stores and Lake Fleet. The British loaded up what they could and then burned over 2,000 highly needed barrels of supplies along with the entire French Lake Fleet. Bradstreet left shortly after and reached Oswego just as the Montreal militia arrived at the ruins of Frontenac. Now not only was all communication and supply routes severed with the West, British forces had opened up the front and back doors into the heartland of New France. The victories at Louisbourg and now at Frontenac had negated the momentous victory at Carillon. The French could no longer hold Carillon and were forced back north to set up positions on the Richelieu River and reinforce garrisons at Quebec and Montreal. Bradstreet wrote to Abercrombie and pleaded with him to allow a strike west at Fort Niagara, which controlled the portage between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. Little did both men know that the post had a mere 40 defenders, but Bradstreet was instead denied the chance to strike a double blow that would have signaled the end of French control over the Pays d'Ont. General Abercrombie didn't last the year in his position as head of the British war effort in North America, due to his catastrophic defeat at Carillon in July. By September of 1758, General Geoffrey Amherst was promoted to lead British forces against the French after his spectacular victory at the French island bastion of Louisbourg on Cape Breton that previous summer. I cover the battle in great detail during bonus episode 1, Le Grand Arrangement, if you want a refresher course. Amherst would move to Albany and seek the counsel of the loyal British subject and leading citizen of western New York, Sir William Johnson. Johnson represents another character in our narrative that blends the old and new world in great balance. I've done my best to infuse our story with the syncretic component between European, Native, and Africans in order to convey to the listener the true diversity of the connections that existed at the time. Johnson had earlier entered our story in episode 1 and rose to fame by successfully winning the Battle of Lake George in 1755. Though he had failed in his other duty as head of Indian affairs due to the large amount of Iroquois casualties and the infighting amongst the Mohawk along religious lines. Nevertheless, his victory had not gone unnoticed in London, where he was knighted by the king. He resigned his army commission and took on the full task of repairing relations with the Iroquois League. With the French victories at Oswego and Fort William Henry, the British lacked support from the League inclined towards neutrality. These fortunes were made no better by the victory at Carillon, but improved drastically with the French defeat at Fort Frontenac. Johnson rode the tides of fortune and stood best placed to lead any British force west from his stronghold at Fort Johnson on the Mohawk River. Fort Johnson was the seat of his landed estate and the fortified economic center of trade on the Middle Mohawk. A former Irish Catholic who had converted to Protestantism, Johnson joined his uncle clearing tracts of land in the Mohawk Valley for settlement in 1738. His uncle had left Ireland as a child and made a career in the Royal Navy through patronage of an admiral uncle of his own. Peter Warren became a captain of a warship and married into the Delancey family of New York. 
His new brother-in-law was none other than the colony's chief justice. William Johnson got about to establishing what was essentially meant to be a company store for tenants of the newly cleared land on the Mohawk River. Acting as his uncle's agent, Johnson would have had to deal with the Mohawk of the Iroquois Confederation and seek out long-term leases from them. He would establish good relations and use these to leverage trade and pelts through the land of the greater Iroquois Confederacy. Johnson was thrust into the brutal competition for control of trade between Dutch middlemen in Albany, financiers in New York City, and the Iroquois Confederacy. Added to this were large amounts of unruly Palatine refugees that had staked freeholds, claimed after years of abuse from local patroon overlords. The War of Austrian Succession brought a supply of slaves taken from Spanish vessels, and Johnson used this forced labor to ease the burdens of the German tenants. He would freely lend out enslaved peoples to help with the harvest and use their labor to establish higher prices for pelts procured from the West. Johnson's fair dealings with the Palatine settlers and his obvious distaste for Dutch middlemen in Albany had attracted the attention of the Mohawk. Officially adopting him and giving him the name of a man who undertakes great things, Johnson became the face of the Mohawk and German settler resistance to the fur monopoly run out of Albany. The war brought renewed threat of invasion as French forces sweep down into the Mohawk Valley and south to destroy Saratoga, New York. Only Johnson maintained his position on the river west to Oswego and the Great Lakes. He was given the important role of moving supplies west and furs east, all while Albany merchants cowered in their city. Caught between the English and French War of a Trade, the Iroquois League was splintering. The Western Seneca had adopted a pro-French stance and allowed intermarried French traders to move amongst them. The Mohawk guarded the vulnerable eastern door and took on the brunt of the fighting. They saw the French traders as interlopers and resented their attempts to convert their brethren to Catholicism. Johnson achieved his greatest public political victory to date when he assembled the Iroquois together in Albany in 1746 for a conference that would produce a consensus to aid the English in their war against the French. Following a pattern set forth in the Edge of the Woods ceremony covered in Bonus Episode 3, Part 2, Johnson regaled the gathered assembly with tales of martial prowess and the historical friendship with the English. Our first friendship commenced at the arrival of the first great canoe or vessel at Albany, at which you were much surprised, but finding what it contained pleased you so much, being things for your purpose as our people convinced you by showing you the use of them, that you should have all resolved to take the greatest care of that vessel that none should hurt her, whereupon it was agreed to tie her fast with a great rope to one of the largest nut trees on the bank of the river. But on further consideration in a fuller meeting, it was thought safest, fearing the wind should blow down that tree, to make a long rope and tie fast to Onondaga, which was accordingly done, and the rope put under your feet, that if anything hurt or touched said vessel, by the shaking of the rope you might know it, and then all agreed to rise all as one, and see what was the matter, and whoever hurt the vessel was to suffer. Notice the symbolism of the collective communal bonds in the use of the rope, and geographic knowledge displayed by the extension of such rope to Onondaga. Johnson was also communicating shared commercial and security interests in an offer of an alliance. The New York governor went a step further and substituted the rope for an unbreakable chain that would bind this new covenant. 
While the official invasion of Canada through northern New York was delayed, Johnson set about establishing a system of goods for French scalps funded through materials provided by New York City financiers. These material goods he provided would be used as leverage to entice raiding parties from even the most reluctant Western Iroquois to engage in the fight against the French. Political infighting amongst New York's elite left Johnson close to bankruptcy, and French royal victories prevented large-scale expeditions of regular British troops promised to Johnson. By war's end in 1748, Johnson's efforts had gone unrewarded by the British crown and the colonial New York government. As French, native, and British subjects surged into the Ohio River Valley and clashed for control, Johnson developed his storehouse on the Mohawk into a syncretic salon culture on the edge of the North American wilderness. He would host political discussions and scientific demonstrations, while maintaining his ever-expanding family of children born of native mothers. He toured the colonies under his own expense and argued for the development of a formal colonial head of native affairs in British North America. Frustrated by political infighting and lack of support by the crown, Johnson had almost given up his crusade when news of French excursions into the Ohio River Valley were brought back in the form of metal plaques. In 1749, French forces had placed concrete reminders of their claims and intentions by burying a series of metal markers that signaled ownership over the important land passes and river crossings throughout the Ohio River Basin. It was at this moment that Johnson used his greatest leverage and quit his role as mediator with the Iroquois. Peace had brought competition for land not only with the French, but with other English colonies whose speculators and agents consistently cheated the Iroquois and attempted legal subterfuge against their fellow colonists. With the French on the move in the Ohio River Valley and colonial governments at each other's throats, a special conference was called in Albany in 1754. Iroquois leaders laid out their accusations against Albany merchants selling arms to the French, land grabs by the colonists, and demanded the reinstatement of Johnson as Indian agent. Johnson was reluctant to take up his old duties without prior compensation, but geopolitical events would soon settle this account. George Washington's era at Jumonville in 1754 propelled Johnson to the forefront once more. Placed in charge of Indian affairs, and with his debts paid, Johnson was tasked with gathering the Iroquois and supporting a strike up the Lake George-Lake Champlain corridor, while newly arrived General Braddock would push the French out of the Ohio River Valley. Early in the winter of 1755, Johnson recommended that Braddock hold the headwaters of the Ohio and sail the majority of his men across Lake Ontario to attack Fort Niagara. The seizure of this post would negate any French attempts in the valley, and suffocate any French strong points in the West. Braddock dismissed this advice and marched to his doom at the Battle of the Wilderness later that year. But Johnson would finally get to enact his long-held dream as the year of 1759 began. <music>